This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is Goldie Hawn. Goldie Hawn is a director, producer, singer, and critically acclaimed actress. She has appeared in over 30 films, including Butterflies Are Free, Private Benjamin, The Banger Sisters, and Cactus Flower, a film for which she received the Academy Award and Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actress. Goldie recently appeared in the 2017 film Snatched, alongside Amy Schumer. In 2003, Goldie created the Hahn Foundation, the nonprofit organization behind Mind Up, an educational program that is bringing mindfulness and meditation practices to over six million children across four continents. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Goldie and I spoke about how she first became interested in meditation and how she has grappled with claiming her true self versus what other people project onto her. We also talked about teaching brain basics to kids and some of the most important neuroscientific findings about what creates emotional resilience in children and how to introduce these brain basics into the classroom. We talked about how Goldie introduces these same teachings to her own grandkids and why love and family have always been her number one priority. Here's my conversation with the very generous Goldie Hawn. Goldie, many of our listeners, I'm sure, know you as an Academy Award-winning actress, a producer, and a director, but what they might not know is that you've actually been meditating and interested in meditation since the 1970s. And to start, I'd love to know, how did you first become interested in meditation? Well, during the 70s, in the beginning, like 72 is when I was initiated to TM, um, was a time in my life, first of all, that, you know, was, was, okay, I, it was not necessarily tumultuous, but it was a time when my life was changing dramatically. And I had, you know, a lot of areas of uncertainty, if you will, and also that big, quick rise to fame, um, you know, really takes a lot of looking at. It can create anxiety, um, uh, discomfort in many ways, people knowing you and feeling that they know you and they don't. Um, and, you know, aspirationally, I never dreamed of being a, a star. I was a dancer. And so all these kind of pre-ideas of who we are and where we're going and how life is going to turn out for us, these expectations we have, sometimes don't work out the way you expect them to, as funny as that sounds. <laughs> Um, and they say, oh, isn't it great? You know, you've become a star. The actual truth is I just still was me. And the me and the star didn't necessarily go together. So looking for ways to create more clarity, that was a time when it was a big thing to do a meditation. That's when it kind of started with the Beatles and so forth. And I thought, this is what I want to do. I was very drawn to this approach. So that's the reason I actually started into my, my, my life, really, of meditation and the path that it's taken me. Tell our listeners a little bit about how TM meditation helped you in terms of that rise to fame and the anxiety that you were experiencing at that time in your life during that tumultuous period. It creates a sense of calm. You know, oftentimes we live outside of ourselves a lot. And there's a part of ourselves that just, you know, only lives from, from looking out. 
And when you look out, you can create all kinds of projection. You can create, you know, things that actually aren't there. You can, you know, your perception can take you in many, many, many ways. Sometimes, you know, over-determining a situation or expecting more or actually projecting, you know, less, which, of course, is not good. So half glass full, half glass empty, all kinds of things in relationships, work-related, etc. But looking inward is not something that people often think about doing. At first, it seems scary. It feels like you're excavating um, an unknown territory. And for me, personally, I really was interested in, you know, experiencing and having an internal experience. And when that, that happened to me when I first had my first uh, experience in meditation, that very first day, um, it was a revelation in the sense that I met myself back. I got back to me. I got back to my heartbeat, and I can't express the joy I felt to be connected back to me because we put so much out there and we don't look to ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, that was one of the experiences I had. And, of course, it helped me a lot because, you know, without really understanding the brain then, as I do now, what I was experiencing then was obviously peace, a sense of calm, and an amazing ability to become more of a witness rather than engage in things that actually I couldn't change. And so that was one of the, I would say, very positive affect of meditation for me. You know, Goldie, I imagine people who know you from your movies, from the outside, and think, God, I'm so interested. This is so curious. I didn't know this side of Goldie Hawn. And I wonder what that's like for you. People have all these ideas about who you are from roles that you've played. And yet here you're talking about what's really important to you, your internal life and your sense of calm, groundedness, meaning, those kinds of things. And I wonder that gap of people's projecting onto you versus your own sense of who you are, how you work with that. Well, you know, this happened early on because when I first got very, very successful, um, you know, just sort of the first onslaught of that, I saw a psychologist. I, I, this is before my meditation. So I, I really wanted to find out why I was anxious, why I wasn't feeling joyful like everyone around me was all excited for me. And I thought, this is great. I'm, I'm happy. This is, like, cool. I mean, I'm on a TV show. I mean, how did this happen? I was just dancing five minutes ago. The truth is, is that I wasn't comfortable, and it was destabilizing for me because, obviously, I had planned on a different life. I was going to be a dancing teacher, go home, get married, be happy, have children. And that didn't work out. And my perception, believe it or not, as we're talking about other people's perception of me, my perception of the Hollywood scene and the people in it, obviously because of all the things that you hear, um, was that everybody was all screwed up. I didn't want to be screwed up. I didn't want to have eight marriages. I didn't want to not live in a house with a white picket fence and a lovely kitchen and family and all that. I didn't want to, you know, I looked at them and I thought they would drink and they did this. I mean, it was just a perception. Okay. And it, it frightened me. It's not what I wanted for my life. So I had all these ideas, and I was now in the middle of it. So I saw a doctor. So the doctor really helped me open windows in my mind, understanding my relationship to my family, my relationship to my early, early years of being, even remembering when I was a child, in, in, you know, in, when I was in a crib. So I think going back into your life to find what were the pillars, what, what did you have to, to stand on as a child. And with that, you learn to forgive your parents because sometimes they didn't always do the right thing. So they're just people. So you begin, even in the process of, of you know, going through an analysis, you really begin to look at the landscape of your childhood and of your life, 
and of your choices. So when I went and became a, a meditator, it gave me even greater ability. In fact, I could go deeper with less fear into that place of me, that place of, of my own system, if you will. It was very comfortable for me. So when other people would come up to me and say, oh, I love you, or I don't like you, or you're... One time I remember a terrible review. Um, her performance was as flat as her chest. This is back early days. Mm-hmm. Terrible things, as well as wonderful things. But I think we all need to learn, and I did then, is that the joy that you feel that someone else is happy to see you is one thing. But if you take it as if it's just about you and it builds your ego, then that's not right. Because it isn't just about you. It's how people view you. It's their perception, not yours. So beginning to separate that is really important um, I think in terms of where we go in life and how we actually help ourselves become more clear and more able to make much, much better decisions when we take ourselves out of the center of it mm-hmm. and witness. Yeah. I also feel really grateful, Goldie, that you're willing to let the listeners of this podcast and other people who read interviews about you get to know you a little bit and what's really happening on the inside. You wrote a memoir that gave people a window into who you really are. I just want to say I'm grateful for that. You didn't have to do that. You don't have to let us really know you. Oh, that's so sweet. Yeah. No, you know what? And there's a fearlessness about who you are. The other thing is that when you spend a lifetime of, of not searching, but I call it going to the university of you, um, I think it, it, there, there's no, no hiding. There's no fear of discovery. Nothing. So it's a beautiful thing to be able to do that, just as it is a beautiful thing to go up to somebody in a room that you don't know and put your arms around them and say, hello. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things I'm curious about is how you came to the conclusion, if you will, through the Han Foundation to focus on educating young children in brain science and mindful awareness and social and emotional intelligence through the organization MindUp. And what I mean by that is often people who have a lot of resources, a lot of success, they want to give back, and they do a kind of analysis of the world situation and where their heart really resonates. And they say, this is where I want to give. This is how I want to make a difference. So I'd like to understand how Mind Up and its educational programs became your choice. Well, I, you know, I, my philanthropy has always been for children. And, you know, an unhappy child is a pretty, pretty tough thing to watch. But for me, after raising my own children, um, I could see some of the deficits that these kids have to go through. Uh, in nine, after 9-11, the world for all of us had changed forever. And we knew that our children were going to, in some ways, be the spoils of that. Because parents are frightened, the kids are feeling a level of uncertainty and what they call silent distress. Um, you know, we had a big turn down in the economy. All children feel the anxiety of their parents, and children feel everything. And they're stressed, and I started looking at some of the symptoms. The symptoms of unhappiness. I was doing, at that time, starting working on a documentary on happiness and the causes for happiness. And this is a bit before anyone even talked about happiness itself as a subject matter. And at that time, it was not an easy thing to get people to wrap their heads around. Well, what do you mean? I said, well, I think that we need to really re- revisit the very things that make us happy. Because I look around and I don't see enough smiling faces in America. I see more smiling faces in India. And I travel to third world countries and I see people living in circles and tribes and, you know, very, very humble abodes, sometimes on the street. But they're not looking like we look in the mall or in the cars or 
and I and our neighborhoods. So after this happiness issue, uh, 9-11 came along, and it was definitely not a time for me to be doing a happiness documentary. I'm think, people think I was crazy. <laughs> so in keeping of this, I looked at our children and said, too many suicides of these little ones, too much of violence and aggression in the classroom, dropping out of school, a lack of, of empathy, apathetic behavior, and because of all of the technology, an inability and a growing decreased inability to focus. So what I learned over these years was about, because I'm interested, because meditation and understanding the brain go hand in hand. And I believe mindfulness is a very important practice. And getting underneath it is also important, which is what is the meaning of it all. But brain science, to me, was the, was the secret sauce, which created the alchemy that I believe needed to bring into schools. So if a child understands how their brains work, then they're able to understand and c- connect their emotion. What is going on when I'm angry? What is going on when I'm happy? What happens to my brain? And how can I control my own brain with my own intention? So it gives quieting the mind. We call them brain breaks in the classroom. We do three times a day, sometimes four if the kids take a test. It calms their brain down, but they, they know what part of the brain is being you know, calmed. They know about the amygdala. They know about the executive function prefrontal cortex. They know about their hippocampus. And in doing so, it's a much more holistic, in my view, on how we train our children to have tools for the future, for their lives, and for school. We have to know that education today isn't just about math and science. It's also about preparing the child to learn and giving them a sense of control and opening their minds for learning. So this is why... I put a four-pronged program together with the help of, obviously, scientists and neuroscientists and positive psychologists and so forth, teachers. And now we have a four-pronged program. Mind Up is the name of our program. We're at over 6 million children now globally. And we have a 15, you know, you know lessons. It's very simple. And, you know, interestingly enough, it came to me after we created it in uh, 2003 or four, and it literally was 250 pages. And I held it, and I looked through it, and I went, wait a minute. We have to reduce this down for teachers. This is They can't hold this in their right hand. I want them to be able to hold this booklet in their right hand so they can know to, to mindfulness is, is very easy. And the idea of learning the brain is not learning full-on neuroscience. It's learning parts of the brain. And then having them do mindful exercises in the classroom and wrapping their curriculum around all of it, such as perspective-taking and acts of kindness and gratitude. This has changed our children tremendously. We researched it right away. And I wouldn't go out as Goldie Hawn, who was looked at a certain way, as we talked about before, with a certain perception around her, for them to anyone to say, well, what does Goldion know about education? But I wanted real proof before I went out and did this. And we got stellar results. Stellar results. In fact, they said they'd never seen changes like this in children over such a short amount of time. This is our researcher. So that's when I felt armed to go out and say, hey, I've got a new way of teaching. You know, it's mixing all of it together and putting it, you know, in a, in a classroom. And that was about 13 years ago. Goldie, what I think is so genius about your approach is nobody can really argue with the value of teaching brain science. So, of course, people can argue, you know, we're bringing meditation into the school system. That sounds religious or something like that. But bringing brain science into the classroom, of course. So I think that's very strategic in terms of how you're entering the world of education. It really was because, 
you know, a brain break is something we all need. Everyone understands that the brain needs a break. And as we make, you know, we do our breathing and we follow our breath, and we listen to a bell and we have this quiet time. What they're learning is what's going on in calibration of the left and right hemispheres, is that we know every brain needs to sleep. Every brain, you know, needs a rest. It, you know, recapitulates the day and gets us ready for the next day. But during the day, we need a break. And what is interesting is, is that parents will say to me, we need this. So it isn't just for children. It's for all of us. It's not just for inner city kids. It's for children of affluence, who, by the way, studies showed, are much more at risk because our children of affluence are given too much and they don't have the resilience or the ability to say, I'm going to do this to get out of the situation they're in. They self-medicate more. They are really, they need help too. So when you look at, you know, you look at a charity, Charities are beautiful things that we do, very important. You know, research, cancer research, genetic research. We are also, you know, helping, you know, children in Africa and food and and shoes, and some organizations are giving diapers. But there's something about me that says to change the culture, we have to change the minds and hearts of our children. Because they are the ones that are going to carry this to create a new world. They're going to come with tools to be able to manage their emotional construct, their reactivity, to become better listeners, better leaders, ideate better, problem solve better, and have some dignity, some level of humanity that they have learned throughout their early education. And I do believe that early brain development is extremely important. And this is where I think every school, I'm going to say in America, I'd like to be the forerunner there of saying every school in America, but we're now in 11 countries. And I would like to see the world be able to change the way we educate our children. Now, you said something interesting, Goldie, that it's not just kids who need to understand brain breaks, but that we need this as adults. And you also mentioned that children feel the anxiety of their parents and of the larger context in which they're in. So for whether it's for adults or for kids, what are the brain basics that we need to know? You mentioned we can learn about the amygdala, the prefrontal cortex, and the hippocampus. And I dare say that I bet some of our listeners feel like they could learn your pith instructions on those three parts of the brain and what we need to know. Right. Well, that's, that's a very good question. The, the parts of the brain, you know, our brain is a symphony, okay? It's an amazing symphony. And I know just enough not to be dangerous. It's a very complex organism. We have many, many parts of our brain which are extremely important. But in terms of this, to, to try to create a simple image we obviously have a brain stem. We have three, three brains inside of our head. And one of them, two of them are very primitive part of our brain, sort of the reptilian part. And we can't live without them. We have the stem cell, which is our breathing and our heart rate, and everything is, 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 is ruled by that. It's, it's, uh, it's autotomic, I think it's called. It comes right right, just this is when you're born, this is what you've got. And then the next development was this limbic system, which is where you have your emotions, part of the emotional construct of our brain. And what we talk about is, rather than looking at things like the hypothalamus, which obviously gives an understanding of how these messages come through, we don't want to complicate it too much for our children. And for the teachers, frankly, they can go on a deeper dive if they want. They learn that these two little things, little kidney-shaped things on the side of the brain, called the amygdala. These amygdalae, really, are the part of the brain that receives these messages. This is when there were lions and tigers and bears, and it was fight, flight, or freeze, 
And that's what we have every day. We are born with it. It's there to help us. We can smell bad gas, and that amygdala goes off, and we know we're smelling something bad, and we know we have to go on alert. And, and that is a very important of when we were, you know, really primitive beings. Needed it. It saved us. It showed us it. It kept us on alert. It's really looking for what's wrong. But now we don't have lions and tigers and bears. Now our amygdala is very reactive, but it also reacts to many things. It reacts to anger, fear. It reacts to anticipation. It reacts to love. It reacts to hate. It reacts to, you know, it's a reactive uh, part of the brain. When that is on alert, kids come home from school, their parents are splitting up, they're hearing an argument, the world is going around, you know, hurricanes are on television 50, you know, 100 times over. They come in anxious. Some children come in thinking they're going to be shot on the way to school. There's so much they hold. And we're not aware. When we come into the classroom, our children have to calm down. They know now that when their amygdala is on fire and they're all, and we call it the dog barking, and when that dog barks so loud, we have to quiet it down because the prefrontal cortex is our really, really big brain. That's the part that makes the decisions. That's the part of the brain that learns and actually has a connection to the hippocampus so we can remember, as does the amygdala. So the point is is that these kids learn that they know how to breathe and focus and calm, and they know then that their prefrontal cortex lights up. And that wise old owl now can think and can function and can make much, much better decisions and remember things better because they're not all frenzy, and as some of the kids call it, so crazy. And they can get better results by having that. And we do that for create, creative things. We do it for test-taking. We do that every day anyway to calm them down from the playground. And some of the children will talk about their gratitude during that time. And it's been an amazing process because they also know that dopamine is emitted when you're feeling joyful, when you're feeling grateful, when you do an act of kindness. They know we do the dopamine dance because the dopamine is like the greatest neurotransmitter that gets emitted when we do these positive things. So this is the kind of feeling that they know that they need to sit quietly. And now our kids will say, I need to take a brain break. Or they'll say say to their mom and dad, I'm I'm feeling very, I'm I'm feeling nervous. I'm feeling like this. I'm I'm just going to go take a brain break. And they're seven and eight. Mm -hmm. So this is what, contextually, we've given them an image. They know that their brain is, they have plasticity. That if they practice something over and over again, they're going to change the way they think. So it's really powerful stuff. And knowledge is power. You know, Goldie, in terms of understanding the brain in a way that I can remember and have it be useful, I have to say the explanation that you're giving here and also throughout the book, 10 Mindful Minutes, that you wrote, it really works for me. I've interviewed a lot of neuroscientists and I get lost. I can't really remember anything. I try to find the takeaways, but to be honest with you, it's not the part of my brain that works so well to remember all of the specifics. But when I think of the amygdala as, you know, a dog barking, I get that. You know, I, yeah. <laughs> I get it. I get the wise old owl in the brain being the prefrontal cortex. I think this is really useful for all ages just to have the clear takeaways. They, they are clear, you know, and it's like, you know, I'll bring neuroscientists in and so forth, and then they talk about the corpus colostrum, and they talk about the thing, and they talk about the bridge between the left and the right brain. You know, these kids don't need that. Once they start understanding and they want to go into neuroscience, they can. The one thing that I'm looking to bring into the curriculum, and it is our 7th and 8th grade curriculum, because we go up to 8th grade, 
is I think they need to know about their endocrine system. I think it's really important that our teenagers today learn why they're up one minute and down the next, why they feel crazy and alive and great and everything, and then the next minute they're like, you know, totally, you know, zombied out. They need to know why they're feeling the way they're feeling. And they need to understand the endocrine system is a huge thing that's happening to create the adult them. And when we start looking at all of the frenzy and all of the things, the brain actually is starting to, like a lawnmower, going over all these connections in your brain. It's why you forget things. It's why you, you're kind of all Kleana Scotsy, like old <laughs> teenage, right? Mm-hmm. But they need to know why. It's okay, you know. But you need also to know that there's stupid things that happen, which means you might get into a car where somebody's driving and they've been drinking and you shouldn't do it. And you know you shouldn't do it. But that's unfortunately part of what happens. So when you become mindful of what's going on in your own brain, then you can actually be mindful about what your actions are with a level of understanding as again, as a witness. So this is where, and I think parents need to really look at this, and I've read some books on the brain and the teenage brain. They're too, uh, what do you call it? In, uh, what is it? What's dense? They're too dense. They, it needs to be a simple, simple way of explaining what's happening because then parents won't be so reactive. They'll be more understanding. Mm-hmm. Instead of like my grandson's thirteen, and he'll come and he'll do his thing and he'll you know whatever blah blah blah. And I'll look at him and I'll say, okay, don't go teenage on me. <laughs> and he knows exactly what that means. What well, what does that mean when you say don't go teenage on me? What is he? That your what brain is, is actually recalibrating. You're you're literally going. You're going to be talking one minute. You're going to feel angry the next. You know I know how the brain goes, and we but we all do. And so when the kids are n- understand it, which my grandson does clearly, he, you get the fact that you're, they're all over the place. And to blame them for that is not fair. To, to be with them on it is the way we nurture them through this very difficult period. And by the way, being a teenager is really hard. I mean, we don't we all remember that? I do. So when you say to your grandkid, don't go teenage on me, does he have a sense of, from being exposed to these brain basics, of how to work yeah. with himself at that moment? Right. And what does he do? Right. Yeah, no, he understands it because we talk about it and Kate talks about it with him. And, and, all, and by the way, all, all my grandkids meditate. You know, I mean, I have pictures of one of my, my four-year-old who was meditating on the back of his father while his father was sleeping. <laughs> he was in the lotus position uh-huh. with his hands in the moon. <laughs> I mean, they're so cute, I can't handle it. And uh, But they do it. Now, three of my kids um, actually go to school in um, Basalt. That is a full-on mind-up school. And so they came home the first day of school to the ranch, you know, where we are in uh, Colorado. And he, they came back with little paper, right, that said, the amygdala does this, and you've got to, you know, draw the connective lines to it. The prefrontal cortex does this. So the first day of school, they started learning about their brain and doing brain breaks three times a day. Now, of course, as a grandmother and as someone who created this before they were even born, I just sat down and cried, <laughs> I said, oh, my God, this has happened. My children, you know, as it turned out, are having my program, something I dreamed for children before they were even here. So it's sort of like on a personal level, I can't explain the joy that I have when I go into a classroom of children who are experiencing this. It's, it's, there's nothing like it. Mm-hmm. Nothing, nothing, nothing. For me, 
all the work that I've done, my movies, amazing. My, you know, you name it. Nothing comes to that except the birth of my own children and my grandchildren and my family. But when you talk about what do you do and what have you given back and how have you, what are the choices we make as people, just as you, just as a person, what are those choices we make? They mean everything. And when I made this choice, I made it out of love. Love for children, love for humanity, dream for a better world. And I thought if you change one child, then I I did okay. I never expected this program to go this far. And it's now at critical mass, so it's continuing to roll forward at a fast pace. When I sat in my meditation room, and this came to me in my meditation, which was, what am I going to do for the world? I saw it globally. I dreamed it globally. It was my vision. And I never expected to get there. I wanted it so much to go into the Middle East. And it's there now. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive three free gifts just for visiting us. Go to soundstrue.com backslash free. That's soundstrue.com backslash free. And now, back to Insights at the Edge. Colty, when you saw that vision, did you at that point in time understand that it was about teaching people brain basics or was it a different was it about emotional intelligence what what did you see as the original seed yeah really good good question it was it was it was actually giving them greater emotional intelligence um and finding ways in which to deliver that mm-hmm. and because i had been you know at several you know um, you know conferences and so forth with mind and life and been to dharmasala and had gone up there with, you know, Richie Davidson and seen his research and realized, you know, understanding more about the brain. Uh, I realized at that point that you that mindfulness and this sort of thing is, is really good, but it didn't quite ring the bell for me, for kids. Even though it's very important for them, I think they need to know more about what their brain is doing. Mm-hmm. After all, we ask them to use it it's a muscle. It's brain fitness. It's, you know, we don't, no school ever thought of it. When in fact we say, use your brain, pay attention. Children don't even know what attention is. And, you know, we can go to the man on the street and ask them three parts of their body. Okay. Organs. But we, I'm quite sure that most of them wouldn't know three parts of their brain. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're trying to do. And we have seven-year-olds now explaining how the brain works for them in our simple version. Yeah. Now, I'm curious to know, in your own parenting and grandparenting, some stories about how you've drawn on this curriculum successfully, maybe sometimes when it didn't work and that gave you some interesting feedback? Well, you know, we, you know my, they're little. And now we've got, now I finally have a 10-year-old, and I have a 7, let's see, 8, I think he's 8. Now I've got a 6-year-old, and I have a 4-year-old. My 4-year-old goes by herself and and meditates, because she sees her brothers doing it, and she sees, you know, uh, her father do it. And he has taught them, and he has taught the children. 
and I have as well, meaning let's just sit down and get quiet, let's meditate for a while, or take some breaths before you act, um, or calm down, and, you know, they get overexcited. I'll sit with them and say, or let's take some deep breaths before we figure this out. So in terms of giving them an understanding of brain, um, this is something that they have little books on and that sort of thing that we do. Um, but the other part of it is is that when, they, when they've gone to the school and done this, and then when Ryder comes home, Ryder and I talk about this all the time, and Ryder is 13. And so he, he's well aware of it. Also, my other grandson is very much aware of how important it is for him to quiet down. Now, learning the brain at four is, t- is tough. So we start at kindergarten, right? So we start usually at five or six, and even then you start very small, little, little integration, you know. And then when they get into first grade, they start, you know, then it starts to become a real, a real thing. So the brain is part of our children's lives. In other words, we talk about the brain. Mm-hmm. We talk about, you know, how does your brain feel today? So it really gets them connected to it. I mean, and we do, you know, and, and, you know, it's one of those things, grandma doesn't live with them. So when we do, the, the good news for me is that my children are, my, my children are great parents. And they do that. And that's the amazing thing. When I see my kids with Oliver, who meditates, and they sit with him. This is what's important. Hmm. Now, your book, Ten Mindful Minutes, in which you really go into quite a bit of detail about how to introduce brain basics into a classroom or into a family, and then also how to work with various mindful awareness practices. The foreword to the book is written by Dan Siegel. And as I was sitting with the book, a question came up for me, and and I'm really curious about this, Goldie, which is, you know, Dan Siegel is an expert on many things in the field of interpersonal neurobiology, but also on the importance of healthy attachment. And I was thinking that if children don't have healthy attachment early in their life, in the first couple years of their life, parents who really turn towards them and attune to them, even if they learn these brain basics from kindergarten on, there's going to be this kind of wound inside that is really hard to heal. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are about that and how, as a culture, we can help heal these early attachment wounds. Right. I mean, I think that's, that's a huge um, problem uh, because children do come in with these attachment issues, and lack of attachment, um, sometimes too much attachment. But the, the problem here is, is that all mental disturbances are not part of mind up, which means that we cannot go in as um, that kind of a program. We can only go in to give them what they're going to need in order to facilitate it at some point as their life goes on. It's not going to fill the hole, just as mindfulness doesn't fill the hole, of, you know, any child or anybody who's suffering from, um, you know, attachment problems. So the problem with that is is that it does create narcissism. And what is, is unfortunate is that, the less attachment that a child has, the more narcissistic uh, potential narcissism can take place. And narcissism, as we know, is, it's not like, oh, he's so narcissistic, da 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 Narcissism is a real condition. It's not, um, you know, it's a, it's a real personality disorder. And it's a, it just breaks my heart because all these narcissists who come out who are nasty and they don't like criticism and they are offensive and they can be abusive, that's... That's a sad story because these little guys and women didn't come out that way. That's what happens when you don't have attachment to your parents and nurturing. It's just awful. So I would say this is a parent program, not a children's program. Mm -hmm. And that program needs to go into the parents before they even have a baby. These kind of things could be taught in, you know, in high school. Because 
it's 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 very very difficult. Or you can obviously you know reach out and speak to parents everywhere. You know, write, you know, put a website, write books. You know, on all of it in simple ways. I mean, the simple way is the best way because it's very hard to understand all this stuff when you look at you know what are the connections of the brain that don't get connected. You know, what are the areas of empathy that don't get, you know, expressed? Why is it that, you know, when a child blah, 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 doesn't feel this, they could lack empathy, they could, you know, whatever. And also, you're not, you're not doing what you promised. You bring a child into the world. It's a big responsibility. It's asked a lot of you. So that's why I wrote 10 Mindful Minutes, which is become mindful first. Mm-hmm. before you can ever expect to have a mindful, loving child. Mm-hmm. So I think it's it's a parent outreach. Yeah. 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 Okay, in part of 10 Mindful Minutes, you talk about optimism being cultivated both in the school system and within our families, and you write that optimism acts like a resiliency vaccine. And so I wanted to hear more about this. And I'm, I'm just going to be vulnerable here for a moment, Goldie. As I was reading the book, I asked my wife of, of 16 years, I said, do you think I'm an optimist or a pessimist? And she mm-hmm. said, clearly, Tammy, you're slightly pessimistic, but you're less <laughs> pessimistic than when I met you. Uh, and I, th- I think that's true. She's, uh, I, w- I would say she's slightly an optimist. Uh, But it just, it it got me thinking about how pessimism can run pretty deep, and it's a hard thing to change. And I wanted to hear what you had to say about that, about how we can raise optimistic kids. Right. Well, first of all, the, the, the one thing that our brain does is it looks out for danger. Okay. And especially, you'll find out a lot, I'm going to go back here for a minute, but in men, um, and I think maybe a lot of women can relate to this, is that men are always, it's like, they're more negative than you'd like. In other words, it's like, oh boy, that's it. See, now that's going to happen there. And I knew, I knew that was going to happen, right? And they'll look at, you know, the downside, right? It's like, it's like I look at Kurt and he would look up and he'd say, that plane is just way too low. <laughs> yeah. So it's sort of like, well, I know, but maybe the plane really isn't going to crash Maybe it's just taking off, or maybe it's in a holding pattern, whatever. So, but the brain is, is attuned to that. So it's not that they're necessarily pessimistic. Sometimes it's they're looking for the dark, the danger side. In order to shift that, it's like a muscle, right? And I call it sort of the Grand Canyon of negativity, which gets... <laughs> The way, you know, everything connects in the brain. So it's, you know, it's the, it's how the neurons fire. It's, you know, or they say, you know, whatever, whatever, what was it? Whatever fires Fires together, wires wires together. together, Yeah. So, but anyway, so you literally look at supplanting the negative. So when you become aware of your language, that will never happen. Never. Um, You know, you name those words that actually, and you say, oh, look, look what I just said awareness, which is what we're trying to get our kids to become self-aware and aware of others, is awareness of self is very important because then you can rephrase it, which is a more positive phrasing. So you, you supplant your negative thought with a positive thought. And we have some of that in the classroom, which is, I'll never do the test. It's self-talk, right? And my self-talk is, I can't do the test. I'm not smart enough. I won't get an A. This is all the fearful self-talk. And then when it goes up through the brain and they understand what they're doing and it goes up through and passes through the amygdala, what would your higher brain say? And then it's like, I can do the test. I feel I will do the best I can. I won't worry about what my mom says. I'm going to do the best I can. Down below is my mom will kill me, right? So it's a way of rephrasing. Every time you say something, I can't do that. I'll never do that. Say, no, I can do that. I will always be that way. I will, you know what I mean? I will always. And the other thing, and my father said this to me, oh, it's so, it's such a cliche. 
But I was running through the house. I had the kids. I was going to thing. I was, you know, younger. And I was with the phone and the thing, and I was producing, and I, and I wasn't in the moment. And my father was having coffee in the kitchen, and he looked at me, and he said, go, stop. Stop. Smell the roses, honey. You can't do this. I've never forgotten it. And every time I take a walk, I smell the roses. And obviously, bring in my dad. Because that's the stuff that changes our mind and changes our brain. We strengthen our brain for more positivity. By the way, overly optimistic people are just as dangerous. I was gonna. I was gonna bring that up, incidentally. Yeah. But yes, I'm glad yeah. you are. Yeah. Yeah, because that when you're overly optimistic, you don't see the world right either. Mm-hmm. So it, you know, I I think that's you know somebody who's just not looking in the right direction. So it's really about clarity of mind, and realizing that you're finding more negative during the day than the positive. And it could be like, you know, the way you name something. So I, I just look at it and I think, okay, and I've, I've witnessed myself of how I would approach a problem or approach a person or that I'm frustrated because things aren't going well, you know, and I'm, and I'm using the wrong words. Mm-hmm. And you come back and you go, wait a minute, I have to rewrite this. Mm-hmm. Now, I think being aware of our language, that's very important, and I think that can give us a lot of insight into how we're thinking. One of the things, though, that concerns me is... If we just replace positives for negatives, can we be covering up how we're really feeling? And, you know, kind of sugarcoating shit, so to speak, but right. just to say no, it bluntly. I, and I that's problematic. I, that is problematic. That's a different thing. Here, here's the difference. The difference is what your feelings are as long as you're in control of them. Is you become less reactive. So becoming less reactive doesn't mean that you're less angry. But anger does not, anger begets anger. It does not turn into anything like anything good. So when you are angry and you feel this anger, you have to sit with yourself to realize that the best thing to do is to understand why you're angry and then move into a way of approaching the subject So you have a modicum of calm. And one of the reasons is, for me, I'm going to speak just personally, is is that, and I've lost it, but it takes me a long time to lose it. A long time. Because I'm I'm very aware and I'm very patient. What I realize is it doesn't make me feel good. Mm -hmm. I walk around then with a bad feeling because I didn't get it out on that person. And you think, I look at this and I think, no, I got it out on that person by sharing with them what I'm really feeling. And when you're angry, you can say you're angry, but you don't have to yell and scream and, and lose your own ability to think because you, you become reactive. And that reactivity is actually more destructive than what made you angry in the first place. So anger is, is, a, is a really interesting thing when, or your true feelings. I mean, I can know when I was with a man once and I didn't want to be with him anymore. And it was very dangerous. It was not a good situation, not dangerous, but dangerous to stay in something that isn't good. Mm-hmm. But you approach it after thinking about it and you know, concerning yourself with how you're going to handle this. At the end of the day, sitting down and saying, look, we had the best time. But right now, I know something, and that is is that I can't be here anymore. And this is about me. It's not about you, and it's not about blame. You've done things that aren't good. I've done things that aren't good. Was I angry before that over time? Yeah, I've been angry, but I handled it differently. Mm-hmm. I handled it with respect 
and love, and I got exactly what I wanted, which was freedom. But freedom without hurting someone, you know, uh, attacking them, abusing them verbally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, our emotions are ours. They're not anybody else's. And when we want to look at how we're going to have an optimum experience, then we have to look at our emotional construct really clearly and say, how am I going to look at this day and how am I going to face this problem? But I'm going to tell them how I feel, but I'm not going to be angry. Yeah, that makes sense to me, and and you've explained it very clearly. Yeah, a kind of clean anger without the charge. Without the charge. Yeah. You know, oftentimes other people want to be angry. I remember somebody called me once years ago. Uh, I was, and he's well known. And I was, I'm not, it was like the 70s, but I remembered it. And he said, did you tell so-and-so that I think, because when I tell you something, I want it in you know, privacy, and I don't want to be repeated, and, you know, blah, 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 and I listened, and I said, I'm sorry. I didn't realize that that was confidential. And he paused for the longest time and said, wow, I really respect you for that. I... I really do. He said, most people are defensive and they get angry and I really appreciate that. And it was so interesting to see how it quelled his anger. Mm -hmm. Because I listened and I owned it. So it's, it's kind of a dance, but I think it's actually a mindful dance. Goldie, there's just a few other things I want to squeeze in here and talk to you about. (laughs) I'm just going to squeeze them in quickly because, you know, I'm so impressed that Mind Up currently is reaching more than 6 million children. And at the same time, there's this force, I think, working against mindful awareness in children, which is the force of technology and iPhones and all of our gadgets and always being on our phones instead of present with the people we're even having a meal with. And I wonder, how do you see this force of technology and Mind Up's recommendations to educators and parents? Well, it's, a, it's actually a double-edged sword because there are many things on these devices that are helpful. Um, on the other side, this addiction is, like, enormous. We all feel it. You know, I mean, I leave the house now without my phone as long as somebody has a device and just because, you know, but I, you know, I, I looked as I traveled across the country with my children uh, in a van. I'd never had a phone. So you realize today they all in the car, they're in the car, they're in the thing. People aren't conversing. They're at tables looking at their phones. I mean, it's stealing many aspects of our intimacy our humanity, our ability to look each other in the eye and have empathy for our wonderful thing called mirror neurons, which is you're able to be with someone, feel the glow and the energy in their eyes, and then you emit the same thing. I mean, what are we doing? I What we try to do is just, you know, put the phones, you know, have a very serious program in terms of what we do in the classroom, which is where we talk about the phone, and the phone has to stay off in a certain place because it steals what we're doing and it actually confuses the brain. We have, you know, a bit of talk on that in the classroom, especially as they get older. Um, But this is something we have to become aware of to teach kids about it and parents. But honey, I don't see how we're going to change it. I really don't. I think the only way to change it is through personal self-awareness and how it's taking you away from community rather than connecting you to community. Because it just does. Sitting in a circle in the classroom is so much better than being on the, the you know, social media. Mm-hmm. And, but 
you know, you're, it's, we're just fighting an uphill battle, I'm telling you. Yeah. So yeah. I just think the idea of continuing to, you know, talk about it, make it a thing, um, watch uh, families, children, you know, you've got so much time, you want to be on that, and then you've got to be off, done. And the reason is not because I don't like you, but here's what this can do. You know, I'm not being mean. Yeah. You know, but other than that, honey, I, I have no idea. I really don't. It's, it's a conundrum for me. Mm-hmm. Now, Goldie, when I was preparing for this conversation and learning more about your life, something really struck me. And what struck me was just how you've found a way throughout your life, and this is my own language, to find a position of empowerment, to find empowerment in your life, whether it was starting to meditate when you felt anxious and it was a time of upheaval or becoming one of the first women to direct and produce films, here now starting Mind Up from a vision that you had about expressing your heart to help children. I mean, this is amazing to me. And I I wonder what it feels like on the inside when it comes to finding a place of personal power in your life. What does that feel like on the inside? You know, it's it's really interesting. I don't, I'm not aware of it. And, 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 and this is not me being, you know, humble. Um, I'm just not aware of it. You know, I hear you say that and it brings tears to my eyes because it's, it's a recognition that I never think about. And, and the reason is, is because I never set out in life to be anything but a dancer. In other words, I didn't have lofty um, goals that I felt that I couldn't achieve. And so what's happened to me is this feeling, as this began, this all my life began, is that I was fearless. That's the one thing that I was, was fearless. And the idea and practical. So when I started producing, I produced because I could, because I felt just for a practical reason that women were not getting the roles that they should get, and we need to develop them. And I felt that because I was sort of a specific kind of character, it was much better to develop movies that meant something, because certain things mattered to me, social issues, women's movement, a lot of things mattered to me along with comedy. So I took that step fearlessly. And, you know, destiny is an interesting thing because then that parlayed into other things, producing for other women, writing, directing. And then came a time when I wanted to write a book, but I I didn't want to write a memoir on my life because I didn't, that wasn't about anything. Oh, you know, when my mother did this and that. What I wanted to write was how this story can help people. It was really about that. And that's when I wrote Lotus in the Mud, because, and my, my first book, because I wanted my experiences that weren't always good that came out, what I learned from them. It was a teaching. Mm-hmm. And then came my my what I've done with the children and, you know, and all of this because it needed to happen. And I just went out there, like I said, one child maybe, but my, obviously I had a bigger dream on that one. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I just put one foot in front of the other, honey. Yeah, but but, but being fearless is not a small thing. I I mean, I think many of us have a lot of fear and it stops us. It stops us. Maybe we go a little bit, but then it stops us. It does. It really, it can, it can. I mean, it, it, it is the idea. And, you know, it runs in many ways. Like, these are, like, big things I did, right? Because it was my life, right? So, yes, I was already acting, so I thought, so one step in front of the other. But it's also, what do you believe in? Because it has to do with what you believe in, what you care about. And when, you know... We, we look at our lives and we get stuck or we go to the office and we do, we, you know, we're sitting in a cubicle. 
what is it that you care about that will matter to you? I mean, some people, you know, are concerned about the aged. Some people are concerned about children. Some people are concerned about dogs and and our lives with, you know, their lives and, and animals. There are many, many things to care about, you know, the environment, gardening. What is your passion? And to me, that's the first thing you have to find because that's what brings depression. When people don't feel useful, they start to, you know, wind down because they don't feel that they matter. And every person matters and every single idea that you can say, what do I care about? Ask yourself the question. That is what matters. So one step in front of the other is that you're going in a direction that matters. And that's how I felt. Movies about something with women in it mattered. Comedy mattered. It relieved stress. It made people happy. That mattered. Doing books about things that would help other people, that matters. And creating programs for children today, that's everything to me. It's everything. And yes, I'm going to do a TV series, and I'm doing this, and I'm doing that, and it's all going to be fun. But my big question is, what is it about? What is that TV series about? Funny, yes. Woman of a certain age, going out there, doing her thing. It's going to be funny and fun. And, and, but what's it about? That's what I want to know. Goldie Hawn, thank you so much for moving forward step by step in a direction that matters to you because it's given such gifts to all of us. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was so much fun talking with you, I've been speaking with Goldie Hawn, the founder of Mind Up, and if you're interested to know more, mindup.org. Soundstree.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening. <laughs>